Good morning. It's good to see everybody. I got a nice group in the overflow area with a nice big television, so it's the best seat in the house. Okay, well, if you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you today. Um, just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. But last week, I wanted to put our study in John's Gospel on hold to do a special two-part message on God's Word called Fight the Good Fight. Now, as I said last week, I think that most of you realize that God's Word has come under attack in our nation like never before in my lifetime. And in fact, I feel like never before in the history of our nation. But it's not just America. It really uh, is a coordinated attack by the devil against all the nations that have a Judeo-Christian heritage. He's attacking all of us. Why? Because the countries that have a Judeo-Christian heritage have the truth. We have the light. And Satan wants a world of darkness. Um, I'm sorry to say that two of the worst examples of nations under attack that are buckling are England, where we came from, and Canada, our neighbor to the north. It's no secret that the devil has uh, always attacked the word of God and has done so from the beginning. As we said last week, as far back as the Garden of Eden, when he first tried to get Eve to doubt what God had said. Remember in Genesis 3, he said, As God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And that was designed by the devil to sow doubt into Eve's mind as to what God had really said or maybe didn't say. If there's confusion and if there's doubt as to what God's word is actually saying, the devil can get in there and he can begin to warp people's understanding of the word of God, making them think that by embracing the devil's lies, they're really honoring the word of God. That's where we are as a, uh, as, as a nation in our world today. But back in the garden, as I said last time, the attack was um, subtle. Okay. Uh, didn't Satan didn't come out and say, oh, he's a liar. What do you listen to him for, Eve? No, of course, she wouldn't have gone for that. Adam wouldn't. Nobody would have. So he was very subtle, all right? But today the attacks have become, I think, far more blatant and uh, in your face as Satan seems to have thrown off all subtly and has now adopted a kind of a direct frontal assault approach in his attacks on the Word of God. What do I mean? Well... Last week, I read part of an article that came out a couple, three weeks ago, an article that really gave rise to today's message. Let me read you most of the article. You can get it online. Um, but let me read it to you. It says, and I quote, A prominent American Christian leader, John MacArthur of Grace Community Church in California, has issued a call to American church pastors to join in a fight being waged by their Canadian brothers. Decision Magazine reports that MacArthur wants American Christian church leaders to join with Canadian pastors on January 16th to preach on God's plan for human sexuality. The problem is, uh, the problem is a coming Canadian law that specifically contradicts the Bible. MacArthur explained, according to Canadian law as of January 8th, 2022, the belief in God's design for marriage and sexuality will now be seen as a myth. 
The Decision Magazine report explained the Canadian law is an attack on speech and faith under the guise of banning so-called conversion therapy. That agenda already has gotten a start here in the United States with several states that have, uh, that have banned it, have banned conversion therapy. Essentially, the idea would restrict any speech or belief that would counsel individuals, especially youth, against adopting a homosexual or transgender lifestyle. MacArthur includes a call to repent of sin and turn to Jesus Christ as the first step of Christian discipleship. MacArthur cited comments that came from Pastor James Coates of Grace Life Church of Edmonton, Alberta, and Pastor Andrew DiBartolo of Encounter Church in Kingston, Ontario. Coates explains the law in Canada directly comes against per parents and counselors who would seek to offer biblical counsel with respect to sexual immorality and gender. And could and could criminalize and could criminalize evangelism if a person turns from homosexuality or or transgenderism or is encouraged to do so. And De Bartolo explained, on January 16, 2022, faithful men across this country, Canada, and many in the United States as well, will be preaching on God's design for marriage and the biblical ethic of sexuality. We will be doing so illegally in Canada declaring to the state that there is one God and one Lord over his church and that Christ alone gets uh, to both define marriage and dictate what it is required from the pulpit. So we get to, God tells his pastors what to say uh, and we preach from his word, right? We are honored that our American brothers will be joining us in this. MacArthur pointed out what pastors are supposed to do. Our calling as gospel ministers is to preach the truth, confront sin, and call all men to repentance and obedience to the gospel, the good news, that achieves soul conversion and saves sinners from eternal wrath. He asked other, he asked other pastors, will you stand with me and our Canadian brothers and confront in a spirit of love and mercy the damning sins legalized in our culture? And will you join the nationwide effort to preach on a, on a biblical view of sexual morality on January 16th, 2022, and proclaim the gospel of salvation that is now criminalized? MacArthur explains a unified message from Christian pastors will put the Canadian and the U.S. governments on notice that they have attacked the word of God. We are all well aware of the evil power and destructive influence of the homosexual and transgender ideology. Our government is bent on not only normalizing this perversion, but also legalizing it and furthermore criminalizing opposition to it, end quote. Now listen, I don't agree with John MacArthur on all points of theology. I've always believed him to be a good man, and I still believe that. In fact, John was one of my early mentors. But this issue transcends any differences we might have on non-essential doctrines of the Christian faith. This, dear people, is a blatant attack on the Word of God, the design of God, and the creation of God for human sexuality. This is pure and simple a rebellion against Almighty God. Make no mistake about it. There is nothing more basic and, and fundamental to civilization than human sexuality. When people on the left constantly tell us that they quote-unquote follow the science, well, then human sexuality should be a no-brainer. 
Nothing is more a matter of science in the matter of human physicality than gender. It's coded into our DNA. Whether a person is male or female is a matter of genetics, not preference. But look, the fight over human sexuality isn't really a fight with society or culture. Again, it's a fight with Almighty God. It's a radical rebellion against His divine order and plan, plain and simple. We are surrounded by so much rebellion in this country, we, even as Christians, don't realize how God still sees it. It's almost, you know, accepted. You remember, though, back in the days of Samuel the prophet, when God gave King Saul a direct order on what to do in a given situation, and he flat out disobeyed that order. He felt he knew better than God what was the best course of action. So he didn't obey the order, came back with his chest puffed out as if he had done such a great job in serving God. He even told Samuel that. I have done all that the Lord has told me to do. Samuel pushed back, pointed out his rebellion, and gave these infamous words that we all know, right? 1 Samuel 15, 23, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you, O king, have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king over Israel. I think God's getting ready to clean some house in his church and in our nation. Maybe we'll call it the people's house, which we're hoping so. I'm talking about Washington, D.C., of course. As we pointed out, the new Canadian law is a direct assault on the validity of the Bible and blatantly contradicts that which has been the bedrock of the, of the Judeo-Christian faith, not to mention the foundation of Western civilization for centuries. Look, Satan knows if you want something to fall, you got to hit it on the foundation, right? I told first service, then I had to stop myself quickly and change course a little bit. I said, if you want to bring a building down, you don't aim for the top, you aim for the base. Unless you're trying to knock buildings down with airplanes, I guess. Look, Satan understands that Western civilization is built on God's word and primarily the first ten chapters of the book of Genesis, where Genesis means beginnings. This is where life begins. This is where spiritual life is rooted. This is where a Christian nation is founded, right? Yeah, the whole Bible, don't get me wrong. But I'm talking about, in the first ten chapters, God's la God lays out the basic fundamentals of human society. Satan knows that. And he knows that if you want to bring down, listen, a society, you start with marriage, and then family, and then the government, and church, and so on and so forth. But again, if you're going to chip away at the foundation, it starts with attacking human sexuality. Because again, guys, that is the... Destroy the foundation of God's creation where men are created biological men and women are created biological women for life. For life. Both with fundamental roles. This is the key. Both with fundamental roles to fulfill that God has ordained. What roles? Read Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33. You destroy sexuality, 
you get people confused as to who can be a man, who can be a woman, not how you're born. That'll translate into a, a um, destructive message that will begin to destroy society, marriage, family, society, and the church. Look, all the institutions that society is built upon are built upon these principles, primarily human sexuality. You destroy that and a society is going to begin to crumble and with it, civilization itself. That's how important or vital uh, the biblical doctrine of human sexuality is. Now, if you disagree with that or you challenge that, fine. But years ago, I heard a historian who had studied all the major civilizations uh, across uh, the span of, of time. And they said, without exception, the last days before a civilization crumbles and, and f falls into obscurity, is destroyed, the last stage is open, blatant, militant homosexuality without, without excuse, without uh, variation. It's, that's always the last stage before a society crumbles. Rome didn't fall from without it. It was rotted from within. This was part of what they were dealing with. America is no different. Now, guys, what exactly does God in his word say on the subject of human sexuality? You don't have to turn to this because it comes right out of the first book, right out of the first chapter, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Okay? So God created man. Mankind is the idea. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Very simple, right? When the, when the question of marriage and divorce was posed to Jesus by the leaders of Israel that wanted to circumvent the clear teaching of God on the subject, Jesus responded in a clear, unequivocal way, and in so doing, gives us God's design for human sexuality. Turn to Mark 10. I will have you turn to this one. Mark 10. Now let's pick it up in verse 6. Where Jesus said in verse 6, From the beginning of the creation, from the very first, God made them male and female. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Folks, let's be clear. The Canadian law that just passed, attacking human sexuality as defined in the Bible by calling it a myth, is merely the latest salvo in the long war against God's word. It is the latest attack against God's design for marriage and family. Because again, Satan wants to bring down America. He wants to bring down the church. America and the church are just built on marriage and family. Destroy those and those other institutions, government will fall. I'm sure you know this, but marriage is the only institution that God created that predates the fall. Let me say it again. Marriage is the only institution that God created that predates the fall. Marriage was given by God before there was sin in the world, which means that it is not a product of sinful fallen man, 
but the creation of a holy, righteous God. Marriage is the creation of God, and as such, only God has the right to define it and regulate it. Now, I say that because today you have all kinds of people pushing for all kinds of marriage, right? Gay marriage, group marriage. I was telling first service I, I saw on TV a few years ago where a woman actually got a mother, got dressed up in a wedding gown, and in church married her son, who was nine years old. He had a little suit on. She had a wedding dress. Yeah, of course, that's what I said. What? Well, the idea was she, was, she said, I want my son to know how much I love him. Look, I understand the love of a mother for her son. But our society has gotten so messed up and so convoluted in our thinking. We don't even know what's normal anymore. We don't even know what's normal anymore. Listen, I don't care who's pushing for gay marriage, group marriage, or whatever form of marriage that people are pushing for today. These don't qualify as marriage in the eyes of God, and he's the only one that matters. He's the one who created marriage. Nobody, No human being has the right to say, push God off to the side and say, well, let's get in here and tinker with this. God won't tolerate it. He won't stand for that. Listen to what, again, Jesus said. They're quoting the Old Testament Mark 10, verse 6, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. First of all, Jesus tells us that God created them from the beginning, male and female. In the Hebrew text of Genesis 1.27, both male and female are in the emphatic position, giving the sense of the one male and the one female female that's the way it comes through as god is emphatically stating i made one man and one woman that's how i designed it to be in other words guys god did not create a group of males and females that could pick and choose mates as it suited them think about it god could have made 10 men and 10 women and said now find a mate he didn't do that did he In God's original creation and design for marriage, it was only one man, one woman, and therefore there was no provision or even the possibility for multiple or alternate spouses. There was only one man and one woman in the beginning. And for, the, and for that reason, divorce and remarriage was not an option. Not in the original ideal plan of God for marriage. I'm not saying if you're divorced and remarried that God doesn't love you, that, you know, no, I'm not saying that. But God laid out the ideal. When he gave us marriage, there's a law of hermeneutics, which is the science of Bible interpretation. It's called the law of first mention. What does that mean? It means whenever a major concept appears for the first time in the Bible, marriage, atonement, worship, study that passage because it becomes the prototype for understanding that major concept throughout the rest of the pages of Scripture. This was God's this was the prototype. This was God's original design. Now look, if we don't live up to God's ideal, and we often don't live up to his ideal, right? It, it, it's, you know, today, instead of toughing it out, look, God's will is not always easy, right? Especially when you're talking about God's will for fallen sinners. 
God's will for marriage was you get married, you hang in there, you work through your tough times. You 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 know it's going to be a lot of sparks flying. You had two fallen sinners trying to become one with each other. They're button heads and sparks are you know. What does the Bible say about? Um, uh, my mind just went blank about uh, you know people that uh, that bash heads together. It spark creates a lot of sparks, but in the end it fits people together. Marriage is exactly that way, but. A lot of times today, people don't want to hang in there. They don't want to uh, obey God to the point where it's like, Lord, we're going to hang in here no matter what, and we're going to trust you that you're going to bring us to get, make us truly one. And the couples that do that can look back and go, we had some stormy periods, but we hung in there. And I can't tell you how glad we are we did. No, young couples a lot just jump ship. They don't want to work through the hard times. Little storms come, they want to bail. This was God's ideal plan for marriage. One man, one woman, therefore there was no uh, opportunity or provision for multiple or alt multiple spouses, alternate spouses. Neither was there for homosexual marriage either. There was no provision for that. One man, one woman, right? Look, human sexuality was never intended by God to be a difficult or controversial subject or concept. God made two genders and ordained that marriage be limited to one genetic male, let me put it that way, and one genetic female, period. The confusion comes in when fallen people get rid of God, appoint themselves as God, and then begin to do whatever seems right in their own eyes. This is where we are today. We call ourselves a nation under God. We have a Christian heritage, but we haven't really been a Christian nation in a long time, and some would argue we've never really been a Christian nation. But we have had some godly people come over here and establish this country. We're going the way of Israel, a nation founded by God, a nation under God, that eventually turned their back on God. One of the blackest periods in Israel's history is the book of Judges, right? Where we read over and over, five, six, seven times, I think, uh, words to this effect. I'm quoting out of chapter 21, 25, book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Therefore, every everyone did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. There was a king in Israel. His name was the Lord God Almighty. Who is the king of America? And if you say Joe Biden, I'm going to throw you right out of here. I know you wouldn't say that. Who is the king of America? The God in whom we claim to trust. But we don't listen to him. We give him lip service, but we don't really obey him. And when you don't obey God, when you, when you jettison the word of God... Then you begin to do whatever seems right in your own eyes. That's where we are. That's why God said to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 5, verse 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to those people. And if you study the Old Testament, whenever you see the word woe, that's a word of coming judgment. A word of You see it in the book of Revelation several times, right? Right before judgment was coming. In Deuteronomy 12, verse 8, God is commanding his people, 
You shall not at all do as these people are doing in the land I'm going to bring you into. Every man doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. This is where we are, guys, as a society today. Again, people have severed themselves from God. I'm not saying they don't go to church. Many don't anymore. But people have severed themselves from God and his word and have set themselves adrift in a sea of moral relativism. Where now truth is subjective or relative based on feelings. You've heard it. Well, I don't really believe the Bible. I believe, I feel that my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. Well, give me a break. However, whenever people reject God's design for human sexuality, two genders consisting of one biological male and one biological female, when people reject God's word, when they reject God's design, sexual identities and sexual practices quickly deteriorate into confusion, chaos, and gross perversion. Have you taken the time to Google how many genders people say are out there today? I did in preparation for this study. I Googled it, and the number is roughly 72. I say roughly because it's a fluid number. It's always changing. Okay, Nobody really knows for sure. On any one given day, it could be 72. It might be, you know, 75, we don't know. But that's, but most of the hits I got were said there's 72 genders. Now, let me share some of them with you. I'm not going to share them all with you, okay? And I'm just going to share them in alphabetical order, not in the order of importance or popularity. All right, first one is agender, agender. This, I got these from so-called experts on the subject whoever they were. I just trust there's an expert out there on the subject. Well, there's gender studies in these universes. There's all kinds of so-called... Anyways, a person who is agender does not identify with any particular gender or they may have no gender at all. Androgyne. Androgyne. A person who identifies as androgyne has a gender that is either both masculine and feminine or between masculine and feminine. No confusion in these these uh, definitions, by any means. Bigender. A person who identifies as bigender has two genders. Cisgender. Cisgender. A, per a cisgender person identifies with the sex that they were assigned at birth. Why not just say the sex they were born with? All right? Now, I would be a, a cisgender because I was born a male. I've always identified as a male. Right? Of course, in the old days, it was called normal. <laughs> but, you know, everybody's got to have a label now. Cisgender. Gender fluid. A person who identifies as gender fluid has a gender identity and presentation that shifts between or shifts outside of society's expectations of gender. Gender outlaw. A person who identifies as a gender outlaw refuses to allow society's definition of male or female to define them. At the core of all these is rebellion. 
originally. Gender queer. A person who identifies as gender queer has a gender identity or expression that is not the same as society's expectations for their assigned sex or assumed gender. Non-binary, a person who identifies as non-binary does not experience uh, gender within the gender binary. People who are non-binary may also experience overlap with different gender expressions, such as being gender non-conforming. Now, I'm going to have a test afterward. You better write this stuff down. How about omnigender? Omnigender. person who identifies as omnigender experiences and possesses all genders. 72? I mean, how do you fit all that in your head? How do you go anywhere? You got 72 people in this car. We're going, I, I don't understand it. Now, look, I'm having a little fun with this, but honestly, my heart goes out to these folks. Um, I, my heart really does go out to them. They're so confused. Why are they confused? Because somewhere along the line, someone convinced them, a professor or a parent, that the Bible is hokum, you can't believe it. Toss it out. And they did not realizing that now they cut themselves for, loose from the anchor that will anchor their soul to God. And the devil's got him. He's just, well, read Ephesians 2. They're being carried by the current of the world to hell. Jesus can stop that. That's what we pray for. Give you a few more. Polygender and pangender. I guess they're the same thing. People who identify as polygender or pangender experience and display parts of multiple genders. Transgender. That's one we've heard a lot about lately. This is an umbrella term that encompasses all people who experience and identify with a different gender than that which they were assigned at birth, than, than which they're assigned sex at birth would suggest. Although most people think of trans men and trans women when hearing the word transgender, this term also encompasses people who identify as a gender other than, ma uh, than man or woman, including non-binary and your gender fluid genders. Trans. Trans is a more inclusive term that covers those who identify as non-binary and those who are genderless, according to the LGBTQIA Resource Center. And then I'll give you one more, two-spirit. Two-spirit gender. Two-spirit gender is an umbrella term that encompasses different sexualities and genders in indigenous Native American communities. I guess different communities have their own genders now if you want. Guys, these are some of the gender identities, or in other words, the genders that some people identify with. Now look at this is my my feeling on it, my take. You could disagree with me. I believe that gender identity flows from sexual preference, not the other way around. In other words, the sexual practices that people are drawn to and embrace becomes the criteria for which gender they identify with. In other words, they might say, I'm drawn to XYZ sexual practices, therefore I must be XYZ gender. Think about that. That's exactly opposite how God has wired us. Now, they would deny that, I'm sure, a lot of them. 
But no, 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 no. This is how I was created to be. No, no. I believe you were drawn to sexual practices and then you chose a gender to make yourself feel that you were born this way. How did God design us? I am, and therefore I do. I am a child of God, and therefore I live for him because that's who I am, right? Today the devil's gotten people to, to basically have the mindset, I do, therefore I am. Isn't it the ultimate tragedy that people made in the image of God? Animals were not made in the image of God. People made in the image of God that have the capacity, as somebody has said many years ago, to worship him and enjoy him forever. Animals don't have that capacity. Animals are not eternal creatures. They certainly can't worship God. Only human beings have the ability, the capacity to worship God, to connect with him in a way that no animal could ever connect with God through the new birth, through Christ, and as such have eternal life, right? Isn't it the ultimate tragedy that people made in the image of God have identified themselves by, by a sexual practice, as if that sexual practice is really who they identifies who they really are. How tragic. Someone might say, well, I like to steal cars. Therefore, I am by nature a car thief. No, you, you are by nature a sinner who likes to steal cars. Come to Christ, and he'll give you the grace to stop that destructive behavior, right? But when it comes to sexual preferences and practices, the Lord has made it pretty clear in his word. Now, you can turn to Leviticus chapter uh, 18. Um, first service, I read most of the chapter. I'm going to leave that up to you. I'm just going to paraphrase it this service. But in Leviticus 18, that's a, the classic passage. Also, Leviticus 20, we're going to turn to some of these. But when it comes to sexual preferences and practices, the Lord made it pretty clear in his word. And I'm thinking again from the Old Testament, Leviticus 18 is one of the passages. God made it pretty clear what constitutes aberrant or abnormal sexual practices which God calls sin and forbids people to engage in. Now, if you read Leviticus 18, God basically said to them, look, I took you out of Egypt, and now I'm taking you into the promised land, the land of Canaan. Don't do the practices of the Egyptians, because they were messed up. And they got into a lot of demonic things and practiced a lot of evil things, and God judged them. Don't look at to the people of Canaan where I'm bringing you because they also practice detestable things, abominations, and so on. Therefore, you are not to be like them in your practices. And he was talking about sexual practices at this point primarily. And you can read the chapter. He talks about them not you know, committing uh, adultery and uh, fornication, adultery, sex between married people, fornication, sex between unmarried people. He condemns incest, fathers having sex with their daughters, daughters having sex with their fathers, mothers with sons, 
Uh, even God condemns, you know, sexual relations between an uncle and his niece or an aunt and her nephew. Or, and you can read it for yourself. It's pretty disgusting that God would have to basically enumerate all this stuff as if it wasn't obvious what they should not be doing. At one point he says, you shall not have sex with an animal. Women, you shall not lie with a male animal. It is an abomination in the eyes of God. God had to actually tell us that? Of course it's an abomination. And the chapter ends by God saying, look, it's for these sinful, wicked practices that I am throwing these nations out of their land and giving now the land of Canaan to you. America better, and Canada better wake up. They don't realize, we don't realize that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what he did 5,000 years ago, he will do again today. And if we think we're too strong for God to wipe us out and basically throw us out of this land to bring an enemy in to dispossess us, we better think again. We better think again. The groundwork is being laid. People don't realize it. But guys, all of these sexual practices fall under the heading of the Greek word porneia. That was a Greek word that God used to describe any aberrant sexual practice, any kind of sexual sin or perversion, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, incest, pedophilia, bestiality. He went through all of these, and they fall under the heading of porneia, the Greek word we got our word pornography from. It doesn't just affect the homosexual community, is my point. You know, there's a lot of folks that say, yeah, those homosexuals, they're, they're messed up, man. I'm glad I'm not like that. Because they're sleeping around everybody they can find. Like they're immune, like, like they're virtuous. You know, I was telling first service years ago, I heard a pastor say that sex is kind of like the fire in a fireplace. That got our attention at a pastor's conference. He went on to explain. He said, who doesn't like to sit in front of a roaring fire? You know, you're sitting on your couch, uh, looking at your fireplace, beautiful fire going. You know how the room is dark. You have the lights off because you love that glow of the fireplace, right? The fire. He said, maybe it's a cold winter night and it's giving you heat. He said, a fire in a fireplace is beautiful. It's, it's um, beneficial. It's comforting, right? Because that is the natural place for that fire to exist. If that fire gets outside of that environment that it was created to exist in, like if it gets out and starts setting fire to your living room and eventually burn down the house, right? Well, it's not a good thing. God ordained marriage for a, for a specific area of our lives between a monogamous relationship of Male and female in marriage. And when it's in the context of marriage, it's beautiful, it's beneficial, it's just really beautiful. But our society is let the fire get out of the fireplace, right? It's destroying everything. Now again, when Christians think of aberrant sexual practices, they most often think of homosexual sexual practices. And we have many gay and lesbian people in our society who believe that, who believe in God and believe 
that God honestly believed this, that uh, God made them homosexual the same way he made other people heterosexual. I've heard this, uh, this uh, illustration. They have said that God made some people heterosexual, some people homosexual, like he made some people right-handed and other people left-handed. And look, if God had said in his word that he made some people heterosexual and some people homosexual, just like he made some people right-handed and other people left-handed, I would be the first one to say to you from the pulpit, homosexuality is not a sin. It's a holy thing that God has ordained. But I can't say that. Because homosexuality is condemned in both the Old and New Testament as being destructive. Look, God loves homosexuals. You might have a hard time believing that because if you're new, especially, you don't know me. We love homosexuals in this church too, but we love them enough to want to see them go to heaven, which means they have to turn from what God has said. Hold on to that. We'll come back to it in a second, right? I mean, God condemns homosexuality in both the Old and New Testaments and says that those who practice it are going to spend eternity in hell. And again, it's not that homosexuality is the only sin or sexual practice that God condemns. Read Revelation 21, verse 8. But this is one of the big ones in our society. So I want to spend just a few minutes on this, right? And, and for this, you don't have to turn to this one. I'll have you turn to the second one. But Leviticus 20, verse 13, where God says in no uncertain terms, if a man practices homosexuality, and obviously a woman practicing lesbianism would also be included in this group. If a man practices homosexuality, having sex with another man, as with a woman, both men have committed a detestable act. They must both be put to death, for they are guilty of a capital offense. So physically they are to be put to death, and spiritually they will spend eternity in hell. Turn to Romans 1. And I'll read this to you out of the uh, NLT 2nd edition. You all know it. Romans 1, starting with verse 24. So God abandoned them, those who refused to obey him. He abandoned these rebels. God abandoned them to do whatever sinful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did violent, degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth, the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust in their hearts for each other. Men did shameful things which other, with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Somebody said to me many years ago when AIDS first uh, was uh, identified, if I believed that AIDS was a judgment of God. And I said, no. You don't believe AIDS is a judgment of God? No. Well, why not? AIDS is the consequence of disobeying what God has said. If I tell you, you're going to fire up here, if I tell you don't put your hand in the fire, 
you're going to get burned. And you walk over and put your hand in the fire and get burned. Was that a judgment of God? Or was that, you know, if God said, don't put your hand in the fire, you're going to get burned. Somebody walks over there, puts their hand in the fire and gets burned. Did God judge them? No. That was simply the consequence of an irresponsible act. God said, don't have sex, men with men, women with women. People have done that, and as a result, the consequence has been AIDS and other sexual, sexually transmitted diseases. Paul said, this is what, I think it was through the prophet Jeremiah, God said, I think in chapter 2, verse 13, Israel's own backslidings will reprove them. In other words, sin has built into it consequences. And if people will disobey what God has said, they're going to reap all kinds of negative consequences. And those consequences will eventually beat the snot out of them to the point where maybe they're going to repent and get right with God. Like the prodigal son, right? While he was in the pig slop, he came to his what? His senses. Boy, it was pretty good in my father's house. I had plenty to eat. His servants never wanted for any food. Here I'm slopping these pigs. I can't even feed myself with the food I'm giving to the pigs. I'm going to go home and repent. Ask my dad to forgive me. And what was the story? When the, when the kid went home, what did the father do? Ran to him. Embraced him. Forgave him. Any one of us who sinned, if we come to our father and say, I blew it. He will forgive us. He wants to forgive us. But Paul said, you know, men and women doing what God has forbidden. Verse 28, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God. I don't want God in my life. He's not even real. He abandoned them to do foolish to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backbiters, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, have no mercy. They, that's the evening news, folks, by the way. They know, God, they know God's justice requires that those who do uh, these things deserve to die. Yet, not only do they do them anyway, they encourage others to follow them in doing the things God has forbidden. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6. And let's look at verse, starting with verse 9. Paul says, don't you realize that those who practice sin, practice sin, it doesn't say if you commit a sin, that's it, you're going to hell. We all sin. He's talking about those who practice sin and justify it and make it seem like it's a good thing. Don't you realize that all who practice sin will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols, or commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, drunkards, are abusive, or, are abusive, or cheat people. 
None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, and the New King James puts it this way, and such were some of you. Paul is not talking about individual actions. He's talking about a nature. He didn't say, and such did some of you. He said, and such, and such were some of you. That was your nature to do these things. Why? Because you were fallen sinners. But there came Jesus to the rescue. That you were cleansed. You heard the gospel. You were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit moved in and cleansed you from all this wicked desire because he gave you a new nature, right? Folks, that's the gospel. That's the great commission. This is our calling. That we Only we as the Christian church and though, you know, anyone who has accepted Christ, only we have the answer to society's problem. I don't care what the, the, the sickness or problem is. Jesus is the answer. He's the cure. And that's why he told us to go into all the world and preach the good news to every person. Because it's the good news that can take fallen, rebellious sinners who are so steeped in their sin, their bodies are sick, their minds are sick, their souls are bound for hell. And we come with the cure. We share the good news in love. And as they receive it, they're made a brand new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. God commanded us to go into all the world. We have the antidote. You know, I was on the radio a week ago. And true story, though. I was remembering something that I saw on TV. I love the Lord. I saw a, a little, I love these little uh, magazine programs, you know, that give you like scientific facts and things, right? So this one segment was how they were using, I kid you not, how they were using sheep blood. They were they were separating you know, it, it, in, a, in a center of fusion and using like, I don't know, the antibodies or something, they were, you know, they were using it as an antidote for serpent's venom. So if a snake bites you and you're dying, they had this stuff where they whipped it up made from sheep's blood that would counteract that and you'd live. I said, oh Lord, this has got, are you kidding me? Lord, this is too much. The human race has been bitten by the serpent, Satan. We have been dying ever since. The only antidote which God has entrusted to us to give to the world is an antidote made from sheep's blood. But not any sheep. The Lamb of God who alone can take away the sin of the world. Right? Look, we are in dire straits. Um, not just America, the whole Western world. And, um, you know, this is just the opening, well, not even the opening salvo. Well, they've been working, chipping away at the foundation of God's Word for many, many years. But if they get away with this and can tell us that we can't share the Bible with people who are wrestling with homosexuality and transgender issues, then what, what else can they outlaw? Oh, we don't like this part of the Bible now, so you can't talk about this. Uh, we don't care for this, the way this appears in your Bible. So now it's illegal to talk about that. Pretty soon, they'll come for our Bibles and just toss them in the fire. I told First Service, I think the gauntlet has really been thrown down. I really do. And I'm honored to stand with my brothers 
other pastors across America and Canada. And, and they really have it bad in Canada. I've been watching videos where Canadian pastors are literally being dragged off to jail because they wouldn't close down their churches or, or, or whatever. It's not as bad in America, but it's coming. I think the gauntlet has been thrown down. The time has come to make our voices heard. Um, this is our moment. Every period of church history has been, has been uh, dealt with issues where the, Christians have had to stand up. Many have, many have not. This is our day. This is, we have been saved for such a time as this. I mean, didn't you say, beloved, earnestly contend for the faith? What is the faith, that body of truth that God gave us to watch over and share the New Testament? Paul just simply said to a young pastor named Timothy, fight the good fight. I'll close with this. Martin Luther was no stranger to controversy. Martin Luther was a Catholic monk who had always dreamed of going to Rome. He was an Augustinian monk who always dreamed to go to Rome so he could see the holy city. Never seen it, only heard how awesome it was. Holy, it was the, it was the Christianity's capital city. So he saved up enough money and eventually went. And what he saw devastated him. Rome was basically called the city of bastards because so many priests and nuns had gotten, you know, nuns had gotten pregnant by priests that the city was overrun with illegitimate children. And the corruption, selling of indulgences. You want to sin, give us some money, then we'll give you an indulgence. You go out and sin uh, and be not accountable. Be Saul. He was a good man, Martin Luther. He had a real heart for God. He, come, he came back and he nailed his 95 theses, 95 reforms to the castle door, church door in Wittenberg, and the Protestant Reformation was launched. And here's what he said, and I'll close with this. Martin Luther, he said, if I profess, this is talking to ministers primarily, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except that point which the world and the devil are at that very moment attacking, I, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I might be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proven. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he, if she flinches at that point, end quote. What is he saying? It doesn't matter if you fight a battle that no one's fighting. You know, there, there's a lot of issues that Christians want to fight over. Timing of the rapture. Uh, are the gifts of the Holy Spirit still around today? And they're off in the corner fighting with each other on these non-essential issues and the devil is trying to kick the teeth out of you know christians who really want to serve god and are maybe uh, are, have been taken captive on the mission field or something the devil's chipping away at the very foundation and the church for the most part is off fighting some side fight instead of the main battle luther says look don't kid yourself 
You'll be over there fighting some non-essential, goofy battle that nobody cares about. The devil sure doesn't care about it. He's attacking marriage. He's attacking human sexuality. And you're fighting some battle that nobody cares about. Oh, look at me. I'm standing up for Christ. You might be professing Christ, but you're not confessing Christ. You only confess Christ in the middle of the battle when you stand up and are a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So may God give us grace. May God give us grace. I say, you know, make your voice heard, right? Well, how do you do that? How about you get on your knees and you pray? The weapons of our warfare, weapons, plural, are not physical, but they are mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds. What are they? Very simply, the word of God and prayer. Know the word, share the word, and pray like crazy. This is the only way our country is going to be brought back from the brink, and it may be too late, but it may not be. Nineveh had 40 days. They repented and got another 150 years. I don't think we have just 40 days. We might. I don't know. But let's pray like crazy, and let's get into the Word and know what God's Word says and not make excuses for it, not apologize for whatever is in His Word. It is in truth in its entirety, the Word of God. I told first service I cheated. I looked, peeked in the back of the book. Guess what? We win. God bless you guys. If there's anyone here, and maybe you're here for the first time, you're sitting there like, I want to kill this guy. Listen to what he's talking about. Come on up here so we can talk with you. You will see that I don't hate anybody. People that say, well, you talk badly about, no, 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 I just want to share the truth. And if a pastor is not willing to offend a few people, the gospel is offensive. I'm not saying that I want to be offensive. The gospel, though, will offend. Paul said, here's your choice, pastor. You can either, uh, you can either uh, be a man pleaser or a servant of Jesus Christ. That's it. And the pastors that want to be man pleasers, they don't love anybody but themselves. Because, honestly, they don't want to take the heat for saying, look, your lifestyle is not honoring to God. He has told you in his word that it will lead to eternal punishment. I don't want to see you go to hell. Hey, they may not agree with us on the first time we share, but at least they will know we care about them. Somebody that doesn't want to take the heat and wants everybody to like them, they don't love anybody but themselves. So if you're, you know, come on up. I, I, I'm a big boy. I can take the heat. You can yell at me and stuff. I have a big bodyguard, though. <laughs> I'm just going to warn you. You can, you can argue with me all you want. Father, we thank you. For your word, your word is truth. It is the sword of the Spirit. And we don't want to wield it like Conan, the Christian, tearing people to shreds, cutting them in pieces with the word. No. By your grace, we want to use it as a skillful surgeon uses a scalpel to gently cut away diseased tissue by giving people gently your truth. And then, Lord, fall on us with a spirit of prayer and intercession that we as this church might be called a house of prayer. And, Lord, we just pray for a fresh outfilling of your outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Give us grace in these last days to be a light. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.